Let's open our Bibles to Luke chapter 1 as we begin a new study through the Gospel of Luke. And we've titled the study, Blessed Assurance. And the title comes from the purpose for which the book was written. And we find the purpose for which the book is written in verse 4 of chapter 1. I'm going to put that up on the screen for you. We normally don't put the, the scripture, or the main teaching text, because I want you to get in the habit of bringing your Bibles and going through your Bibles and so on. Um, we put cross-references up there so I can move uh, in a speedy way. But anyway, for starters, here it is up on the screen. Uh, here's the purpose of the book of Luke. That you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. The certainty of those things in which you were instructed. And that word certainty, literally, it means stability. It means safety. It means security. And I, and I would illustrate that word to you this way. My, my mom and dad, uh, interesting pair. My, my mom, her father was a fighter pilot in World War II. And my mom grew up in literally flying every day. Her mom was a pilot as well. Um, and um, she would fly in a, in a biplane with, my, with, with her parents, you know, and the barn rolls and the, the, all of that stuff, whatever they, they call it. Anyway, she loved it. She's all about it. My dad hates flying. They are they're night and day where that's concerned. My dad, has, he's, he's either had really bad luck with flying or whatever it is. He tells horror stories about planes that he had to fly, you know, when he went to Korea during, you know, the Korean War and you know, uh, he, his last flight, coming back from a business trip from New Orleans, and uh, apparently it was really bad, turbulence, the whole bit. I, I take after my mom, clearly, because for me, turbulence, the, the more the better. Like, when you lose your stomach on a plane, that is just the best. I dig it. I love that stuff. My dad, no, you know. So, <clears throat> three hours enduring this, coming back from from uh, from from the Gulf Coast there, and so he gets home, he they, they lands in L.A., and the man has difficulty getting out of his seat. His legs are aching. He says he's never experienced pain like this in his legs. He's got this immense pain, and then he goes up to get his bag out of the overhead bin, and his arms are like, he says it's like he has cement bags tied to his arms, and then he comes to find, well, yeah, it turns out the man single-handedly kept that plane in the air from New Orleans to LAX. He was holding that plane in the air with his arms and with his legs. Now, the problem with my dad is he's a control freak. That's his problem. I think if he learned to fly and was in the cockpit, he'd be fine. But because he has no control of the situation, he is absolutely terrified. And you know, my dad is not unlike so many people when it comes to issues of faith. See, here's what the Bible says about faith. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, says that without faith, it's impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The Bible, they're saying that we please God by the exercise of our faith, and that's problematic for our flesh. Because everybody, your flesh is hardwired to want to walk by sight. Your flesh just absolutely wants to be able to walk by sight in what you see, in what you can trust, in what you can know, in what you can verify. 
And so when it comes to walking by faith, the Bible says that's not how it works out. That the exercise of faith is the trusting in God in the thing that you can't see. And so when we, like my dad, when it comes to flying, we fly through our faith with, our, with this constant battle between flesh and spirit, well, if, if we trust in that which we can see and that which we can engineer, well, we're going to have a hard time trusting in God. And so what we discover here in the opening verses of the, of the Gospel of Luke is that our faith is based on an amazingly certain truth. That we can trust it, that it is stable, that it is safe, and that it is secure. And because we can trust in God's word, we don't have to white-knuckle our way through life. We don't have to, to, to hold on and keep this plane of our faith in the air. Man, we can rest, we can take it easy, These are the things that we learn here in the Gospel of Luke. So we pick it up, Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, Luke says, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. Now, as the title of the book suggests, this was written by Luke. Luke was the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a medical doctor by, by trade, by profession, And Paul referred to him as the beloved physician in Colossians chapter 4. And no doubt he was beloved of Paul because the man was very faithfully committed to caring for Paul. We know that Paul, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) had some sort of a physical ailment. He would talk about this thorn that he had in his flesh, metaphorically speaking, that he begged God to, to, to deliver him from, but God told him, my grace is sufficient for you. And so whatever it was, he had the need of a physician, and Luke was that physician to him, very caring, uh, very attentive to Paul. As a matter of fact, in Second Timothy, at the end of the, of the book there, this is the last thing that Paul ever wrote, he, he says how everybody had forsaken him, but he said, but Luke, Luke had stayed with him. Luke had remained faithfully committed to being with him, and so very much beloved uh, of Paul. And Luke, he addresses this book to Theophilus. Uh, Some speculate that this is a person, others that this is a title, maybe of a church, or just just to, to lovers of God in general, which is what the word Theophilus means. It means lover of God. We really don't have any other reason um, to, to, to doubt that this is written to a person, I think is written to a person. Um, Theophilus, many speculate, was Luke's patron. See, in this day and age, it, it wasn't uncommon that uh, Romans had many servants, many slaves. 40% of the population at this time were, in fact, Roman slaves. It wasn't uncommon for them when they would 
uh, overcome an area and, then, and they'd, have, they'd fight and they'd conquer territory and so on, that they'd take many people uh, slaves. And um, it wasn't uncommon for them to take accountants slaves and physicians slaves because they had this unique particular professional skill. And, and Luke was, uh, he's, he's, he's a Greek uh, by the way, one, the only Gentile writer of New Testament Scripture, which I'll come back to in a minute. But, um, and, and so what would happen is, is that because he was a physician, probably Theophilus was, was his owner, he being a slave. And um, Theophilus, it, it, Luke refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus, which is actually a title which was ascribed to those in ruling authority in the Roman Empire. So Theophilus was probably somebody in a position of, of ruling authority in the Roman Empire. And, uh, and so we don't know how Luke came to be working for Paul but, or serving alongside Paul, but probably what happened was that Theophilus, this Roman authority, in the course and the context of the Apostle Paul's ministry, that Paul would uh, um, maybe minister to, maybe himself led Theophilus to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Theophilus, seeing the physical ailment or hearing about the physical ailment that, that the Apostle Paul had, reasonably could have said, hey, here's my servant, he's my personal physician, and I'm going I'm to send him to you. And again, all of this is speculation, we don't know. But whatever the case is, is that uh, Paul, Luke now is writing these letters back to Theophilus, <coughs> keeping him appraised of, of all of the ministry that takes place. And we're so very grateful for that. As I said, only Gentile writer of the New Testament, and he has at least two New Testament books that are ascribed to his authorship. There is the Gospel of Luke, and then there is its sequel, which is the book of Acts, which is the historical chronology of, of the, the first century church and what would happen after Jesus ascended into heaven and for the first hundred year period of the church, the book of Acts is talking about it. So an amazing historical uh, documentation for us. And there are some who speculate that Luke actually wrote the book of Romans. And, and we don't know if that's true or not. Nobody really can say definitively who wrote the book of, of, of Romans. I, I think it was the Apostle Paul personally. But if it was Luke, it's interesting because what that would mean then is that by volume, Luke would be the largest contributor of all of the New Testament scriptures. So interesting to think about, but we are grateful that here is this man who uh, is writing um, and he's telling us all about the events that happened in Jesus' life. And he makes mention of the fact that there were many things that were written about Jesus. And he sought to put together a, a chronological, a, a complete narrative of what had gone down. And, and so, again, him talking about many books that have been written, we know not all of them clearly have been um, preserved in the canon of Scripture, not all of them inspired by the Holy Spirit, but all of them being those that wanted to write about the life of Jesus. And John said something curious in, in his gospel, the Apostle John, in John, I think it was John chapter 21, he said, if everything that Jesus said and did were all written down, he said, I suppose that the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So, 
Luke, he feels led of the Lord to go back and get as many eyewitness testimonies as he possibly can. And it's funny, the word in verse 2, the word eyewitnesses, when he, he goes seeking eyewitnesses, in the, in the Greek, it's actually the word autopsis. We get the word autopsy from it. Leave it to a doctor to say, I'm going to do an autopsy on this, and I want to figure out exactly everything chronologically that went down. <clears throat> and so he goes back, and he gets a first-hand message from all of the people who were actually there. Think about that. I mean, how many times have you, have you thought or have you said, man, when I get to heaven, I really want to spend time with you know, so-and-so, the Apostle Paul, or I want to spend time with Peter, or whoever it is, I want to be able to talk to them. This guy did that. And, and so he would have personally interviewed people who had been with Jesus, people like Mary, people like Peter, people like the Apostle John. And can you imagine the conversations that he had? Sitting down, John, you were the only one at the crucifixion. And Jesus looked you in the eye and he told you to take care of his mom. What was, like, what was that like? And being able to have that conversation. Peter, what was it like to walk on water, dude? Like, it, it, that just must have been incredible. What was it like after you'd fished all night and, you know, you're cleaning everything up and then Jesus shows up in your boat and wants you to push out and, and go fishing again? Like, what, what were you thinking about? What did he teach? What was the message that he preached when you put out and he was teaching the people from, from the boat, from the ballast? What did he teach? Or talking to Mary. Mary, what was it like when the angel told you that you were pregnant with the Son of God? Mary, what was it like when Joseph came to you, when he first found out and he told you he wasn't going to marry you? He was going to just put you away quietly. Like, what, what was going through your mind? Or, or, or what, what happened, Mary, after, you know, all the whispering, after you gave birth to, you're just a teenage girl. And being able to have that conversation, and so he would have had all of those conversations, and that's what, from that, he, he compiles this accurate history for us. What he calls an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Now, it's important that we have an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Why? Well, I'll illustrate it this way. We, as you guys know, we're in the middle of a building project right now. And, the, the, and it's been all underground work. Like, they keep telling me, hey, it's going to start, you know, going upward, and it can't happen soon enough for me. I just see piles of dirt moving all over the place. Scotty did a time-lapse video for us. We're going to show it here, and I just started laughing. I'm like, I, I can't show that because it's a pile of dirt here, and then it's a pile of dirt over here, and then they move it over here, and then it's over there. But in the process, they've managed to hit everything underground that they can possibly hit. Like, the first thing they did, they hit the Fios line, and it was a week before the school next door was to start, hit their Fios line. So, hey, neighbor, how you doing? Um, and then they hit our water line like a hundred times, which is ironic because they were searching for the water line for the fire hydrant line, and we couldn't find it anywhere. And, and, but, they, but yet they kept hitting the water line to the building. I'm like, well, clearly, start digging in a place you don't think it is, and you'll hit it. And, and so they, they, they did that. They, they hit the electrical line. I said to Pastor Scott, what's left? 
He said the gas line. I said, shut your mouth. Like, I don't, I don't even want to know. Now, here's the problem. There's not an, an accurate accounting of what lies underground or where it is. And you can't trust Dig Alert. They said it's here and it's not. So, you know, whatever. You just commit Harry Carey at this point. But <clears throat> this, this, all these problems are because there's not an accurate account. And so as it pertains to our faith, we need an accurate account of what happens so that we know that the gospel is reliable, so that we know that it's stable, so that we know that it is safe and that we are secure in placing our hope in it. And so, so very grateful that Luke has done this. By the way, listen, understand this. New Testament scripture provides us with a remarkable, reliable record. There are those, you'll have a conversation with people. I had a conversation with a fire captain years ago, and I was trying to teach him, you know, about the Word of God, and was talking to him, quoting the Word of God, and he says, well, you know who wrote the Bible, don't you? I said, well, you're going to say men wrote the Bible. He says, well, that's right, men wrote the Bible. In other words, there's nothing authoritative about the Bible, you can't trust the Bible, and he goes on and on, and so... You know, the Bible says that the wisdom of God is foolishness to those who are perishing, and he wasn't buying it. But here's what blows my mind. People today will have no problem accepting the validity of the works of Plato or Socrates or of Homer. And you know, those three authors that I've just quoted, Plato, Socrates, and Homer, the total manuscripts for their original writings number about 850 There's only about 850 of the original manuscripts of those three authors combined. But of the New Testament scriptures, we have over 24,000 manuscripts in the original. It is reliable, and it is something that we can set the course of our life by. And as a result of Luke's meticulous work, what we're going to see is we're going to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of the story of God and Israel, that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, as was promised in the line of King David. And we're also going to see how this greater story unfold and how Jesus fits into God's plan of redemption for a fallen world. And the Gospel of Luke teaches us all of those things. And so Luke begins the story now. By the way, these first four verses, I think he wrote through a chronology of it, and then the first four verses seem to be sort of a summary of what follows. So they probably, the first four verses were written after he had written out this chronology for Theophilus. We pick up the the story now, verse 5. There was, Luke says, in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias. Of the division of Abijah, his wife was the daughter of the daughter of Aaron, uh, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was, verse 8, that while he was serving as priest before God in the order uh, of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Keep in mind that Luke is seeking to demonstrate the things that have been fulfilled by Jesus, specifically speaking of the Old Testament covenants, that God had made with Israel 
and the prophecies that God had given to the nation. So the story begins here with Zacharias, a Jewish priest who's serving in the temple. The text tells us that Zacharias was of the tribe of Levi, and his wife Elizabeth, by the way, was as well. She was a descendant of Aaron, also of the tribe of Levi. And so Zacharias, of the tribe of Levi, that makes him the priestly line. Now, they had a a mathematical problem during this time because there were 20,000 male descendants of Levi, the priestly line. So you've got 20,000 guys that are eligible in the priestly line to serve as priests in the temple. That's a mathematical problem because they can't all serve. You just got too many. So what did they do? Every family was assigned two weeks out of the year where they were on duty, so to speak. <clears throat> and during that two weeks, every, every family would draw lots to see who got to do what duties. And so everybody got to do a little bit, but nobody got to do it all. And so this is kind of how it worked. When you're two weeks to serve, two weeks a year, so when it was your time to serve, then you drew lots Lots were cast, and then you found out what it was that you got uh, to do. And maybe, maybe once in a lifetime, not even guaranteed, but maybe once in a lifetime, the priest would have his turn to pray at the altar of incense before the Lord. That was a big deal. Here's what that was. Every day there was a lamb sacrificed. That lamb sacrificed in the morning, lamb sacrificed in the evening at the temple. And what the priest would do if he was going to offer, uh, at, pray at the altar of incense, if that was his job, he would take some of the coals from that sacrificial fire and then it, he would put it in a little golden bowl and he would put incense on top of it. And then this, he would then wave in, in, in front, it would wa- this, the incense would burn and the smoke, the sweet-smelling smoke of the incense would waft up. It would rise up to the Lord there before the altar of incense. And, and this was symbolic of the prayers ascending to God. You see, in, in this day and age, this is how your prayers were heard by God. They had to go through the priest. The priest had to bring your prayers There before God. And so this was a once in a lifetime opportunity. And and what we have here in this earthly picture, the tabernacle first and then in the temple after the temple was built, what we have is it's laid out in, in what would appear to be the corresponding duplication of of this pattern in the very throne room of God. If you were with us when we went through the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 5, there's a section there where it talks about the 24 elders coming before God's throne in heaven. And it says there that they each had bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And so the priest in, in our text here, going before the altar of incense, was actually burning incense, and that was representative of the prayers of the saints, Versus Revelation 5, where the 24 elders are actually in the throne room of God, and in their bowls is actual prayer. That's the incense. That's the sweet-smelling fragrance 
that comes to God. And so this is, you, you might imagine for, for Zacharias, this is a big day. It's the one day in his life when he gets this very special privilege. Point of application for us. You and I, we get this privilege 24-7. We get the privilege 24-7 because of the personal work of Jesus Christ. If we've invited him to be our Lord and Savior, he is our great high priest. And our prayers go to him and he delivers our prayers to the Father. And we have this great and awesome privilege Every single day. Zacharias, he hits the lottery, gets to do it once in his lifetime. Maybe. We get it every single day. That God would hear our prayers. That he's available to us. Second Corinthians chapter 2, Paul said that our lives are like a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. I think it's 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 5 and 8 says there, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. He's our great high priest. And Paul goes on to say, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And so Zacharias, here he is. He's at this altar and he's praying. And verse 10 goes on to say that the whole multitude of the people... <coughs> excuse me, was praying outside at the hour of incense. You see, again, the priest was the representative of the people. You, your prayers couldn't go directly to God. They had to go through the priest. He would go before the altar of incense. He would pray for you, and you would anxiously wait outside for the priest to come out. Why? Because you wanted that priest to give to you, to impart to you, the Lord's blessing. Right? And so, so these people are like, oh, he's praying for us. We're going to wait for him to come out, and then he's going to impart God's blessing upon us. And so this is what's going down there in verse 10. Now, no doubt, up until this point, uh, that, you know, as, as Zacharias is praying for these people, you can imagine I mean, we've already read that he and his wife are childless, and they're now well advanced in years. They're, they're, they're you know, bent over by the years, the, the text basically says. And, and so at this point in time in their life, man, they probably long since given up praying for a child for themselves. Zacharias has no idea that God's getting ready to bless his socks off. We continue the story, verse 11 there he is, he's, he's there before the altar of incense, he's praying for the people, and then, verse 11, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense, and when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. You think? Like, you know, I mean, we read these stories, and, it's, and sometimes we remove ourselves from the, from the actual experience, but put yourself in Zacharias' shoes. Like you get your once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go before the Lord in prayer, and there you are at the altar of incense praying, and an angel shows up. Like you might be quaking in your boots too, you know? And so here he is. He sees this. this, this he's troubled. Fear falls upon him. But, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. 
You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. <clears throat> and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will also go before him in the spirit and power, power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. What an incredible thing. Remember, verses 6 and 7, and make it clear, Zechariah and Elizabeth are barren, right? And in that day, when you were barren, it was viewed as a curse from God. The attitude of everybody looking on was, well, what kind of sin do you have in your life that God's cursed you like this and you can't have kids? That, that was the attitude. But verse 6 goes out of the way to make it clear that's not the case. It says there that they were both righteous before God. And they walked in all of the commandments and the ordinances of the Lord. They, they were blameless before God. Now, no doubt, as I said, they'd offered up until this point countless prayers to God. God, give us children. God, give us children. But verse 7 tells us that they're both well stricken in years. Again, that means bent over with age. So, 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 so I can imagine, and I don't know this for sure, but I think you get to a point when you're praying and asking the Lord for something over and over and over again, and you, you kind of see like you've got this window of opportunity. You kind of see as things are, you know, what's practical, and you go past that practicality as, as it makes sense in your mind, and at a certain point you go, well, clearly the answer is no. And, and here's, here's what I know, and, and, and I know this just... Personally, many of you have struggled with infertility. Now, this applies to a great many things, but let's keep it in context, just infertility. <coughs> and I know many of you have struggled with that. Some of you currently struggling with that. And I know the heartache that that can be. And here I put myself in, in their shoes. Now, this angel shows up, but they don't know that the angel's going to show up. So here they are up until this point. It's been years and years and years and maybe decades. And it would appear that the answer from God has been no. And how heartbreaking that is, especially for Elizabeth. But for both of them, by the way, her husband, Zacharias, could have divorced her for this according to the law. He could have said, you know what? I can divorce you and I'm going to go get you know, a model that works and I'll get, a, I'll get a child through somebody else. And clearly... <clears throat> that's not his heart. He loves his wife. He's devoted to his wife. Hey, we're in this together, sweetie pie. And, and so there they are, and, and it would appear, for whatever reason, God has said no, and what is it? They're both righteous before God. You know, when I was going through the prayer series, or through the, the value series, and we talked about the value of prayer, and we looked there about this attitude, the idea of prayer. It's not so much to get my will done. It's to get God's will done. Billy Graham said that, that prayer is like the, the rope between earth and heaven. And we pull on that prayer kind of like somebody pulls on a bell. But it's not to bring God, it's not, it's not to bring God down to us. It's to bring us up to God. That's the attitude of prayer. 
that we get to the place to where we can say, yes, God, this is, I'm begging you for this, and from where I'm at, and I'm here on earth, and I'm asking you for this thing, but I'm acknowledging that you are God in heaven, and that you know so much more than I know. And so here in prayer, this has been no doubt their prayer for decades, and I would imagine that they finally have given up and said, okay, the answer is no, God. And yet they remain faithful, just serving the Lord, just trusting the Lord, having this blameless walk before God. And now, amazingly, this angel shows up, and again, in my mind, and we don't know it, but in my mind, maybe decades since he's ever prayed that prayer, now he's just busy praying for other people. And this angel says, hey, your prayers have been answered. Elizabeth is going to bear you a son. His name's going to be John. By the way, that name, John, it means the Lord is gracious. And here's what you need to keep in mind. For those of you that are struggling today with some sort of issue, you have turbulence on your flight. God's faithful and he's gracious. And we can bring our prayers and we can let our requests be made known to him. And here now God gives this answer and he says, listen, I'm going to give you a son. And your son's going to be for a very special purpose. He's going to herald the coming Messiah in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. You don't know it, but Jesus Christ is going to say with his own lips, the Messiah himself is going to to say of your son John, no greater man born among women than this man John. Jesus himself will say that. What a great promise that's coming. And here's what I want you to see. You've got two otherwise insignificant people. You got this guy. Yeah, he's a priest. He's one of 20,000. He's just a regular guy. Just a regular guy like you. His wife, Elizabeth, just a regular gal. They love each other. They're devoted to each other. And they're devoted to the Lord. And the Bible says that they, they honor God in just how they live. They're just surrendered to him. And there's these two insignificant people because they trust in the Lord, because they trust in his faithfulness, and because they remain faithful. God uses them to do an amazing thing, brings John the Baptist through their faithful prayers, through their faithful life. D.L. Moody said this. He said, the world is yet to see what God will do with a man fully consecrated to him. And he said, by God's help, I aim to be that man. God, that we would be that way, that we would just say, Lord, I'm going to let my request be made known to you, but I know you're a God who does great things, and you involve us in the work that you want to do. What does God want to do through your life? Just through being faithful. Now, this word that we're hearing from God, this angel speaking, it's an incredible promise. We're going to see that he's going to tell Zacharias, look, I I came straight from the throne of God. God gave me this message personally to give to you. Well, this is the first time in 400 years that God's had anything to say. God's been silent for 400 years. The last time he spoke before this was in Malachi chapter 4. Maybe you were with us when we went through Malachi. Here's, Here's the last words of the Old Testament. 
Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, God says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and the dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and I strike the earth with a curse. After saying this, 400 years of silence, God's like, I got nothing else to say until I send the Messiah and the prophet who's going to precede him. And here he is, and here is the promise now fulfilled, first words of the Lord in the New Testament gospel, that the child that these, this couple prayed for is going to go forth in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. Now, when you get to John's gospel and you read through John's gospel, the Apostle John, he has some words in there to talk about John the Baptist, different person, not the Apostle John, two different people. But, but the, Apostle Paul, or the Apostle John talking about John the Baptist, and he's recording some events that happened when John the Baptist becomes an adult. And John the Baptist, as John records, John the Apostle's recording it, <coughs> he's out baptizing at the Jordan River. And the, and the Pharisees hear about it, and they get mad. Because they're like, well, what kind of authority are you operating under? We're the religious authorities here, and you're out there baptizing people. So in what power... Are you, are, are, and what authority are you operating under? They said, are, are you the Messiah? And John the Baptist will say, no. And they'll say, are you Elijah? Because they know what, what the prophecies were, right? That Elijah was going to come. And so they say, are you Elijah? Now, based on what we just talked about, what we just read here, you would think he would say yes, right? His answer is no. You're like, What? And then they said, well, who are you? And he, here's his answer. He says, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And you're like, well, wait a minute. There seems to be some sort of contradiction because the angel told John's parents that he's coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah. But now he says he's not Elijah. So, so how do I reconcile the two? Here's how you reconcile the two. That there are two comings of the Messiah, and there are two comings of, the, of, the, of Elijah, so to speak. The, the first coming of the Messiah is here in the Gospels, when Jesus came to die on the cross for our sins in our place, and he will be coming again. He came as a suffering servant the first time. He's coming again as a conquering king. Well, the same with Elijah, that John the Baptist came in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, as a voice of one crying in the wilderness for everyone to make their path straight for the Messiah. And so that's the, the, the first coming. The second coming will be before the return of Christ. Elijah himself is going to return and herald that return. So what we're reading about now is John the Baptist coming in the spirit and in the power of Elijah, which is what the text says. So there's no contradiction there. By the way, notice his ministry Right? It's, it's depicted there in um, verse 16 and 17. 16 says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And 17 says, He's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. By the way, listen, if you're anointed by God for any work of service, it's that. This is the anointing and the call of John the Baptist, but really, it's the anointing and the call of all of us 
That we are not to tear people down, to gossip about people. We're not to speak ill, Ill of people or, or anything like that. No, our ministry is supposed to be a ministry of reconciliation. All of us needs to have a missional mindset to understand that there are people that Lord, the Lord places in your circle of influence that he wants you to minister to and share the gospel with and so on. But listen, here now in our text, all of that's yet in the future. All of that lies in the future, and all we have at this moment in time is an old man who's bent over an age who has an unbelievable promise that's just been given to him. This angel says, hey, guess what, bro? Your prayers are answered. Your wife's going to give you a baby. And you can imagine that, that, that you know, Zacharias at this point, all bent over, he's like, great, how am I going to play catch with him, you know, with this kid you've given me? And so he goes on, he expresses a little disbelief. Verse 18, Zacharias says to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. Don't you love that? I'm an old man, and have you looked at my wife? Like, she, she's not producing any kids, right? And, and he probably gets up in, in Gabriel's face and says, you know, and who are you anyway? And in verse 19, the angel answers, he says to him, I'm Gabriel, that's who I am. You want to know? Like, I am Gabriel. This is going to go down. He says, I'm Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and to bring you these glad tidings. He says, I'll tell you who I am. I'm the guy that God himself sent me to answer your prayers and to bring you these good tidings. But, verse 20, behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. He says, you want proof? I'll take your voice away. And you can just speak when the kid's born. How about that for proof, you know? Verse 21, and the people waited for Zacharias. They're waiting for their blessing. He's, in, he's gone in to pray for us. They're waiting for him. And they marveled that he, that he lingered so long in the temple. They're like, oh man, something's going in down in there for sure. <coughs> what on earth is it? Verse 22 but when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So Zechariah comes out, starts playing Pictionary with everybody, and they all figured out, oh, wow, something went down. He must have seen a vision. This is incredible. I don't know what clue he used to show them that, but at any rate, verse 23, so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house, no doubt with a spring in his step. Like, hey, this is going down, all right, here we go. Verse 24, now after those things, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Now in this day and age, you know, sometimes a gal will get pregnant and she doesn't want to tell anybody right away because she wants to make sure that, you know, she's going to keep the baby. Don't, you know, you don't want to go public with that. And then, you know, tragically, you know, something happens. And then now, oh gosh, now I've got to go through it and relive it with everybody. And so a lot of times people will, will keep it quiet. I, I don't think maybe that that's the case so much as notice she, she keeps it quiet for five months. And what's her concern? Her concern is the reproach among the people. 
So I think Elizabeth wants to have a five-month baby bump and walk out and go, losers, you're all losers, that I'm looking right here, baby. Baby, that's right, you know, kind of thing. I think that's what's going down. Now, <coughs> the overriding theme here, we're just gonna, we'll, we'll stop here. Just, just a couple final thoughts in uh, point of application. The overriding theme here is faithfulness. That's the overriding theme. Faithfulness. We see the faithfulness of God. Listen, God keeps his promises. God hears prayer. He's faithful to answer prayer. Listen, God is faithful to include us in his work. He doesn't have to. He includes us in his work. This is going to be the, the greatest man born of women, the Messiah will say, and God has faithfully chosen to include Zacharias and, and Elizabeth in that. God's faithful. Listen, he's faithful even when we're faithless. I love that. Here, this guy, he's been praying for this and praying for this, and then it goes, don't you love that when it happens? I mean, you pray for something, and then God answers, and you, you're, disple- you're like, no, really? You know, what about, you know, Peter when he was locked up in prison and they're in the, in the book of Acts, they're all praying for Peter to get set free from prison. And then all of a sudden Peter shows up, he's knocking at the door and the servant girl goes and she sees it's him, doesn't open the door, leaves him at the door, goes running back into the prayer meeting telling everybody, hey, Peter's at the door. And they're basically like, hey, be quiet. We're praying for Peter to be released. She's like, he's at the door. They're like, no, he's not. And then they go and there he is. Like, you know, God answers prayer. And so faithfulness that God... And he's faithful even when we're faithless, you know, those things. We go through the turbulence and we think, oh, gosh, don't you see, God? Don't you care? Yeah, he does. And he's faithful even when we're faithless. But we also see here the faithfulness of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and that's the, the closing application I just want us to take a walk with. They're just faithful. They, life has thrown them a few curves, you know. They're old, they're bent over in years, they've, they've been through the turbulence, the people have perceived her to be unrighteous her whole life, yet God's faithful to them, and I don't know what kind of turbulence you're going through, but just the exhortation to faithfulness, to trusting in God. I want to close with a quote from a guy named Fred Craddock, he was a, he's a guy, a theology professor at a big college uh, in the south, but he was also very faithful to preach in his church in Tennessee, small church till the day he died. And he was addressing a group of pastors about faithfulness, and he said this, living a life of faith appears glorious. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it, I'm ready. Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. And we think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a $1,000 bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord. I'm giving it all, but the reality, he said, for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the $1,000 for quarters, and we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there, and usually faithfulness isn't glorious. It's done in all these little acts of love, 25 cents at a time. It would be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. And that's what we're going to look at as we continue in the book of Luke. And that's what these first verses encourage us. It's the long haul, and it's the faithfulness of God. And it's the invitation to trust him. He's faithful.